Hi, this is Dave Doyle, and you are listening to the Level Playing Field podcast. Hello, everybody. Welcome back to Level Plainfield Podcast. Level Plainfield is my podcast. My name is Randy Boost. Why interview people who are LGBTQ and involved in sports? I took last week off in honor of Thanksgiving here in the United States, and I am back with a new episode this week. My guest this week is Dave Doyle. Dave Doyle is a reporter in the world of mixed martial arts. In this episode, we talk about how he got involved in mixed martial arts. We talk about some recent fights that happened back in October. Um, I, If you're a mixed martial arts fan, I apologize. I know nothing about the sport. I know enough to get me in trouble, and I ask some incredibly stupid questions. Dave was nice enough to correct me and help me with my knowledge. I am becoming a fan of the sport through Dave, so thank you, Dave, for that. We also talk about ALC. It is the AIDS Life Cycle Ride. It's an annual ride in June that raises money, raises awareness, helps with prevention for HIV and AIDS. We'll talk about the ride, how you can donate. In fact, I'm going to have a link in the show notes how you could donate to Dave's ride. I hope you guys do that for him. Without further ado, though, I like short intros. So let's go ahead and here is Dave Doyle. Welcome, Dave, to the podcast. Hey, how's it going, Randy? It is going well. I've been in LA for the week. The Canucks won today. Um, they did. And I go home tomorrow, so it has been a great week. Sounds like everything's kind of coming together. <laughs> yeah. Let's get into your story. Where did you grow up? What was your childhood like? Grew up in a suburb of Boston called Braintree, um, just, just south of the city. Typical suburban, white, Irish, Boston Catholic kind of upbringing, you know. Dad worked as a telephone repairman for 40 years. My mom was a stay-at-home mom, very devout Catholic. I had 12 years of Catholic schooling. Um, I went to uh, BC High, which is Boston College's prep school, which was good and bad, you know. Um, It was very much... um, what you know, it was in in the late 1980s. It was a Boston Catholic high school that was kind of still stuck in the 1950s. But at the same time, the I cannot deny it wasn't an easy place to be gay to realize that you were gay. But at the same time, they gave me the Jesuits a thorough education. Like college was easy compared to high school, oh, wow. basically. So I don't regret that or the friends that I made. Um, and just I don't know how. I, uh, you know, I was a quiet kid. I was really into sports. I was any Bostonian in the 80s is going to grow up loving the Bruins and the Celtics and the Red Sox. And, you know, I was the generation that was scarred by the ball going through Bill Buckner's legs <laughs> and then hearing about it for the next 18 years until the Red Sox finally won. Yeah. You know, and I was also, uh, you know, if you want to trace the path that ultimately led me to being an MMA reporter, like, Loved pro wrestling as a kid, loved, liked boxing as a kid, you know, a lot of anti-establishment, like, 
punk punk music and thrash metal and all those other things that eventually ended up uh, where I am today. So were you a fan and watched sports or did you play sports as well? There was a little bit of both. Um, I, you know, like as a kid, like football, baseball, basketball, pretty much everything. Uh, I played a couple years of high school football. I don't know. Then there was a certain point where I realized, you know what, like, no matter how much work I put in this, I'm going to never be a starter. So uh, do I really want to do another two years of this? So I ended up quitting. Um, and then still from there, like still watch sports, but it was more like I fell in with like kind of the, the headbanger crowd in high school. Okay. I played drums for 15 years, you know, read and wrote a lot and just kind of went down that path. So then you stopped playing and you start journalism in high school then or, uh, in college actually. Um, it's funny. I don't, I never even took so much as journalism 101. My degrees in sociology and um, kind of bounced around a couple. I went to uh, Westfield State College for a year in Western Massachusetts. I went to the main campus at UMass for a year and uh, ended up at the Boston campus of the University of Massachusetts. And they didn't have a journalism program, but they had a school newspaper. And um, they have dorms at UMass Boston now, but at the time it was like fully a commuter school. Mm -hmm. And... um, uh, I started writing at the school newspaper just to have something to do on campus. And even though we didn't have a um, journalism program, we had an internship program with the Boston Globe, whose newsroom was literally across the street from UMass Boston. So one thing led to another, and I got an internship at the Globe, where like 1997, 98 now. And um, it turned out that you know, going to a job interview and having a clip that was like, oh, hey, I'm 22 years old and here's my piece that ran on the front page of the Boston Globe Sports today meant a whole hell of a lot more than whether it said like, oh, I have a degree in journalism. So doors opened in kind of a roundabout way. And then never looked back, huh? Never looked back. I, um, my first job, um, the, the website that's now cbssports.com it was called Sportsline at the time. Uh, they had an office out on the West Coast, down in the Seattle area, in Tacoma, actually. So I was there for a couple of years. Um, went back to the Globe for about four and a half years or so. Um, I actually, you know, in this in this day and age, it's funny to even like look back and think about it where jobs are scarce. But I actually pretty much like walked out on the Boston Globe. No, didn't walk out like without notice, but like gave notice and didn't have anything lined up because I was just oh, like, I was 30 years old and it was like, well, I could sit here covering high school sports and wait for, not to be too blunt about it, but wait for someone to retire or die. And maybe I might get a chance to write about the Red Sox or I can just, you know, go and see what happens. And I went back to Seattle, did some freelance work. And then a friend of mine, he's a coworker of mine at, uh, USA Today now, Andy Nesbitt, um, just he was working at Fox Sports at the time at their website and just said, hey, we got a job opening out in L.A. Come on, why don't you come down here, you know, interview. And I never at any point in my life had thought like, oh, hey, I'd want to live in Los Angeles someday. But I just (laughs) decided to give it a try and it all worked out. And now you love the L.A. Lakers. Oh, hell no. I was going to get up and leave. It's been nice talking to you, Randy. <laughs> um, no, I, I, um, 
actually had Clipper season tickets for about six years. Um, it, uh, I don't know, it, it just clicked. The, the year that I moved here was that, uh, like, I don't know how close you follow the NBA, but there was one season, like 2005, 2006, where they had, like, Elton Brand, Sam Cassell, and they made it to the second round of the playoffs, and I'm watching them, and I'm like, all right, I didn't, like... Like, in your head, you're, you're thinking, like, okay, immediately I grew up with the Celtics. There's no way I'm rooting for the Lakers ever. Mm-hmm. Um, but, I mean, is there, is, as long as, in, in my head, as long as, like, I still root for the Celtics when they play the Clippers. But otherwise, the, you know, they've been a fun team to watch. They've been maddening up and down. But, you know, the, the, the Blake, Blake Griffin, Chris Paul era was fun. And hopefully, I don't know, they lost again tonight to Utah. So, oh, uh, did they? You know, everyone was ready to give them the, the trophy after they won those first two games, but we'll see. But yeah, it's been fun. They'll, they'll still have a good year. I mean, the West is going to be wild, though. For sure. What about for you? You know, growing up in an Irish Catholic family, sexuality obviously had to be a confusing thing for you. Um, take a dramatic sip of my beer here. <laughs> um, no, it was, you know, it was interesting. I mean, I figured out I was gay by the time I was like 13 or 14. Okay. You know, my sister tells me a story that I, I don't, I have like, like an elephant, like memory. I never forget anything. And I blank this one out of my head. But apparently one time when I was like 14 or 15, like my family was like sitting around the living room watching TV and Oprah was on. And my sister, like there was some type of gay themed show on Oprah that day. And my sister swears that I was just like, those people are dirty. Those people are terrible. Like so over the top about it that that's when my sister like said she knew <laughs> you know so it's like i have no memory of that <laughs> but apparently um you know my so my sister had a clue pretty early on and i went to like thinking about it like i went to an all-boys school um so that that was my excuse for my parents like why i wasn't dating any girls well hey i gotta commute into the city every day and go to school i'm surrounded by dudes the, you know, hey, uh, yeah, that's why I'm not dating one, sure. But uh, I don't know, just, you know, I met my first, um, oh, God, now here's here's another memory that I hadn't thought about for a while. But <laughs> there was, you know, this is back in the day, right? When there's, like, when you try to explain to, like, younger guys now that we couldn't look on our phone and, it like, there wasn't a thing that every homo within, like, three miles of you showed up, right? Like, sometimes you thought you were the only gay guy on earth. I ended up reading in the, the Boston Phoenix, like the weekly, like LA Weekly out here or whatever your alt weekly was up in San Francisco. Uh, there was a story about a, a like a gay straight youth, a, a gay youth group called the Boston Alliance Gay and Lesbian Youth. And they met at a Unitarian church in Boston. And um, um, so like I remember like three straight weeks I took the two this is like almost something like out of a logo movie or something but like three straight weeks I take the train in right and I stand outside the place and I'm like too nervous to go in on the third night like this drag queen comes flying out the front door and she almost grabbed me by like the scruff of my neck practically and was just like honey I see you coming in here out here every week you're coming in here tonight right that's amazing. So I go in there and I go to the um, I go to um, the the Bagley meeting that night and end up like when I'm walking back to the train, there's this other guy and he lived in my hometown and we like started talking on the way back on the train and he ended up being like my first boyfriend when I was 19. Oh, funny. So um, 
that led to me coming out because I had a very inquisitive Irish mom who all of a sudden wanted to know why I was spending like 12 hours a day with this guy, Keith, who, you know, I didn't know before who lived like a mile away. And it was like, um, you know, it was like one of those, like the record needle scratches type of moments. And it was, it wasn't like this, like terrible, like it wasn't this, you know, I didn't get the, like, you're not our son anymore type treatment or anything like that. But it was just the thing that like, they didn't talk about for a long, long time. Um, and it took them, my, my parents have since passed, um, took them, it took them a good fair amount of time to come around. But, um, you know, in the end, so like another kind of cute story. Um, my grandmother who lived to be 90 years old, a couple of years before she passed away, like I kind of got sick of all the, the nagging, like, like the, you know, when are you getting married? How come you don't have a girlfriend? Blah, 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 blah. And I got sick of lying to her. And I think she kind of knew anyways. So, um, I told, I finally just like got sick of like pretending that this wasn't a thing. And, um, just told my dad, like, look, I'm, I'm telling her, I'm, I'm, tired of this right and at first my dad my dad was basically like well let me tell and I'm like okay fine whatever so my dad tells my grandmother first thing my grandmother does is get incredibly angry at my dad for withholding that information from her all those years and then she picks up the phone and calls me and she's like David I'm 88 years old I don't have that much time left I want you to bring me over a nice boy to meet (laughs) so After that, like, I don't know, something just clicked with my parents or it was like, okay, maybe we should, uh, uh, you know, I, I, I can't, I can't actually speak to what they said, but there was a noticeable change after that. Mm-hmm. And so I have one sibling, I have a sister who's four years younger. And, um, when she got married, uh, like by that point, like my boyfriend at the time came along to the wedding and everyone was cool. So... I was well then and well there, but it, it took a little while. Mm-hmm. Different time, different age. How do you get involved in the UFC and mixed martial arts? Um, that's, well, so I'd always been a fan. Um, going back to 1993 was when the UFC started, mm-hmm. the, the very first uh, one. And, like, I don't know if you remember, like, do you remember in, in the 90s there was, like, it was a brief burst where it was this really big, popular, controversial thing, and then it went away for years. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, my friends, like, again, the same whole kind of, if you're into wrestling, if you're into boxing, it kind of falls into that whole sphere, right? Like, you get um, the UFC kind of came out of... Um, it was almost like maybe you remember when we were kids when there was like a karate studio on every corner, right? Mm-hmm. Like like Bruce Lee be- Bruce Lee becomes popular, Bruce Lee movies become huge, leads to it's it, not as direct really as direct as I'm making this, but it's a general kind of through line. Bruce Lee becomes popular. There's a karate studio in every town and strip mall in the country, and eventually it becomes well, what if Bruce Lee fought Muhammad Ali? What if Mike Tyson fought Bruno San Martino? What if, like, you know, all these different, like, hypotheticals, what's the best fighting style? So it came up out of that, and it just popped up on our radar, and we, my friends and I just, you know, were watching it as fans. And then it 
kind of died off because it became like um, it was a very easy thing for politicians to to grandstand about back then. Like John mm-hmm. McCain, very legend in, in our little corner of the world, like called uh, the UFC human cockfighting. Um, you know, led a campaign to try to get it banned, and uh, cable company stopped carrying it. It goes away for a few years, so it comes back around. It gets back on the cable system um, a few years later, and um, by this time, I'm working as a journalist, and uh, you know, started watching the shows again. And by the time I got to LA, it was when UFC was first starting to take off, and there was still as popular as it. You know, by this point, it was already gotten to the point where it was starting to outsell uh, decent-sized boxing pay-per-views, but the sports media was just bitterly resistant to it. Like, I can remember, like, making pitches at the Globe, like, before UFC took um, took off, just like, hey, why don't we do a story on this? And just almost being, like, laughed out of, the, out of my editor's office type of thing, you know? Um, and when I got to, when I was with FoxSports.com, uh, I basically, I, I was like the night desk editor there. I wasn't um, working as like uh, like a beat writer or anything like that, but I pretty much just nagged my managing editor. Um, like, hey, there was one uh, particular fight, like if, if there are fight fans listening to this, Randy Couture fought Chuck Liddell in what was a really big fight uh, in 2000, January 2006. And I was just like, this thing is bigger than anything else that's going on in combat sports for the next several months. And there's like, not even any, like the result isn't even coming up on the AP. This is ridiculous. Like we should be writing something about it. I just kept hammering my boss over and over and over until he basically told me to write like a feature story on the growth of the UFC just to shut me up and get him out of his hair. (laughs) Right. And, um, um, so I did that. I went ahead and I did that. I talked to like Dana White and Chuck Liddell and a couple other guys and the piece on the site, um, like it did more clicks than anything else on Fox sports that year, except for the Super Bowl. So oh, the wow. higher ups noticed that, right? Like people, a huge audience suddenly shows up to the site. The, the, the higher ups noticed that. And then just kind of out of dumb luck, um, the next big UFC show after that, based in Los Angeles, the next big show after that was in Anaheim. So they sent me down to do that. And again, it was great numbers. And then by dumb luck, you know, your breaks are sometimes, making your breaks in life are a combination of um, being in the right place at the right time and also having the herewithal to, you know, recognize when it's like your time to take the ball and run with it and actually doing it. So I had the combination of like right person at the right time with the right attitude. So the next show after Anaheim was in a staple center and that was the return of Hoist Gracie after years and years. So that fight blew up bigger than anything else. And by this point we were doing, um, uh, such good numbers that they, they were like, okay, well, Next one's in Vegas. We got to send you to that, right? And next thing, next few were in Vegas, and one was in Sacramento, and they flew me up to Sacramento to to cover that. But at the same time, it was like I was still like the night editor. Like if there was, I would be the show would end in Las Vegas at like ten o'clock, and I'd be at like the press conference till like one in the morning, and I had to be back 
it, at my desk at like 10 a.m. the next day to, to work my shift. And Fox, being Fox, would have like strung me along that way forever. Um, so that goes on for like a year or so. And then Yahoo, um, Yahoo Sports had a really, really strong run. I know no one really goes to Yahoo anymore, but they had a killer, just killer uh, sports news staff like Woj, who's with Adrian Wojnarowski, who's mm-hmm. with ESPN now, and Dan Wetzel, and I, I could just go on and on here. Um, Yahoo was the first, uh, first like major media entity to just be like, we're just gonna do a big blowout, like you know, cover MMA full time, have its own dedicated page, make it um, treat it like any other sport. And so they gave me a call. And so all within a span of, God, like like eight, nine months or so, I went from just being a desk editor guy who was just like, hey, how about letting me write about the UFC once to all of a sudden I'm like, you know, doing this full time. So it happened really, really fast. You know, you start out watching wrestling and, and big boxing matches. And, and I think we're close to the same age in, yeah. in the 80s. And maybe early '90s, boxing was the big event. Oh yeah, you know, in the early '80s, and you know, Sugar Ray Leonard, the the I, I think he was a middleweight. I forget what weight class because he jumped around a little bit. But Sugar Ray Leonard, Roberto Duran, Leonard Hearns, Hagler. Yeah, exactly. Were, oh yeah, that's what I grew up with. That was. And then and then later on, it was the the Tyson years where he was right. he would have a fight that lasts like thirty seconds, right? Because he was so dominating. So for me. I grew up with that, and we used to always watch the pay-per-view events, um, the specials on you know Wide World of Sports, whatever it was at the time. But there was always a disconnect for me with UFC. You know, I don't know. I like I, I think part of it is UFC is the big one, yeah. but then there's also the offshoots. And with boxing, I was always able to easily follow you know WBA, WBC, IBF. Sure, sure. But UFC and and I can't think of the other. No, there's, there's UFC. There's Bellator. There's um, UFC is really the brand name that like like UFC has the 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 dominance that people say in the market that they say UFC instead of mixed martial arts, right? Uh, but there's uh, Bellator is kind of the second biggest company. They're run by Viacom, and uh, they're not trying to be bigger than the UFC. They're like. They just know that mixed martial arts are going to deliver them a good audience. Mm-hmm. So they're going to, um, you know, put on a good enough show to draw a crowd type of thing. And then there are a bunch of, like, a whole bunch of kind of tertiary players who are never going to be, uh, you know, anything that um, anything that's going to be like a, a... If you're a casual fan, you don't even need to know their name type mm-hmm. of thing. But, um, you know, so there's... Um, there, it's interesting because when the UFC did have their first big rise, like about a decade or so ago, um, people were saying that it was simpler than boxing because there were like the UFC is what the fans recognized as kind of the brand name world championship. And for a few years, they were only promoting five weight classes. Cause a lot of the complaints about boxing are, Oh, there are too many titles or too many weight classes. Yeah. Now there are, man, I've lost count flyweight, bantamweight, featherweight, lightweight, welterweight, middleweight, light heavyweight, heavyweight, women's classes. There are, there are, between the two genders, there's something like 15 UFC champions now. So it's harder to make 
certain fights are rivalry special when there's, um, you know, they've also scaled it up to a point where there's like a fight card every weekend. Mm-hmm. Like when this was first blowing up, there was the pay-per-view every month and then maybe a TV special here and there. And um, like fans had time to like anticipate the fights and get invested in the fighters. And now like the biggest events still have track, you know, Conor McGregor's fighting or there's uh, the Nate Diaz, Jorge Masvidal fight coming up at Madison Square Garden this week's a big one. And there are a few that kind of still, it's kind of turned into boxing in a way and to the, to the effect that there are still a few fights per year that, capture the general audience's um, attention, but there's a fight, just an assembly line of fight cards every weekend that mm-hmm. is dizzying to keep up with if you're not like an absolute hardcore kind of maniac for that. So yeah, so I, I get where you're coming from from that perspective. And then like you also bring up how it's it's like wrestling. And the presentation I, is. Um, like for me as a kid and... Um, up until I want to say maybe stopped watching wrestling in 90, 98, 99. Sure. Um, I like my wrestling. Like I like my porn. I need the story, (laughs) you know? Um, so UFC, it was like it, obviously it's real stuff. It's not. Yeah. And, and don't get me wrong. Wrestlers are athletes. Oh yeah. They are, they go through physical pain through, um, the, the wrestling matches, even though they're s- somewhat scripted, it's still of course. hardcore. Right. You know, you, then you get into like the cage matches and all that stuff. So don't get me wrong. UFC, though, it's like, and this is just my thing. Yeah. And, um, and I actually, I, I, because we talked, we were going to talk, I watched the Boston UFC, and I want to go into that a little sure. bit. Um, but I, it's like wrestling without the story for me. Um, it's, it's, yeah. So part of, look, the, the UFC's business model is uh, almost entirely ripped off from WWE. Um, the guy, so things have changed a little bit over the last few years because the company was sold a few years back. It was... During the, the the first like real boom period that they had, lasting about a decade or so, the um, Fertitta brothers, who are casino magnets in Las Vegas, uh, ran things, and they had kind of a head matchmaker who, um, you know, put together most of the cards, and he had been a lifelong pro wrestling fan who studied the business of wrestling. Um, the matchmaker, uh, matchmaker's name is Joe Silva. Um, he had studied the business of wrestling for, for a long time and implemented, um, like the way you build people, um, and, and just kind of, you know, the pay-per-view model and, um, took a lot of trappings from the wrestling business, but, this is where having real fights is a wild card because in the WWE, they can script this thing to go whichever way they want it to. Mm-hmm. In the UFC, they can even make like favorable matchups to get a fighter to a certain point. If he doesn't get it done, then all that planning means nothing, you know? Um, so that's where, that's where kind of the, the difference is. Like they, there's only so much... Um, only so much kind of building up they can actually do even in um, kind of aping wrestling's model. But that said, in the age of social media, like 
um, all the wrestling storylines basically happen over Twitter. You know, it's guys like trash talking each other. And, oh, does that happen on? Oh, oh, all I, the time. I don't follow. No, no, it's, I, I understand, but no, it's like I spend way much, I have way more time on Twitter than is healthy, just because I have to keep up with. Oh, this is Conor McGregor saying this about this fight. Like fighters are like. Like, going to a gym is, like, it's, like, cattier than a hair salon. And they're basically, they're gossiping and, you know, it, it, it's um, not all that different from being out in the clubs in WeHo, basically. <laughs> Let's quickly go over UFC Boston. This episode's going to air for us in a couple weeks. Sure. UFC Boston happened... Two weeks ago, a week and a half ago? Yeah, sounds about um, right. It all blends together. And I gotta be honest with you, I only watched two matches. Okay. So let's first talk about that, and then we'll talk about the overall event and and where UFC goes with the results that it had. So I watched the Greg Hardy, Ben... Um, Sussoli? Sussoli, yeah. One of the reasons why I bring this up is because of the role where Greg, with judge's decision, won the fight, but it was later ruled that was yeah that fight was everything effed up about mixed martial arts like all rolled into one big ball right there i mean um, that that was like a story of like you'd see in wrestling not that it's rigged at all but i'm just saying you know greg yeah. wins and honestly i wasn't too impressed with his fighting i'm not no know, i'm interested in hearing like what, you know, a, what a casual observer thinks for ufc fans listening to this what you bring to like knowledge of UFC, it's like what Obama brought to the presidency. <laughs> what I bring with my knowledge is what Trump brings to the presidency. Ooh, I let, let's, no, I think I, you're, I, I'm I not saying the corruption to... and the the lying and the thieving and all that stuff, but I'm just saying he's an idiot. Well, you're also able to um, speak in complete sentences, so I think <laughs> you're doing better with this than Trump. So Greg Hardy, to me, looked like he barely won. Okay. So first of all, I, I have to, like, before uh, we get into any other of this, have to remind everyone that Greg Hardy is a convicted and unrepentant uh, domestic abuser. So I am... Oh, I didn't um, even know that. Uh, yeah, he... So Greg Hardy was a all-pro player for the Carolina Panthers who, I mean, like, as dirty as the NFL can be, like, Greg Hardy was too much of a head case for them. Like he pretty more or less got blackballed out of the league because he kept getting into trouble. So it's to me, it's pretty repulsive that the UFC is giving him not only giving them this opportunity, but repeatedly um, like they're, I guess maybe they're going with the any publicity is good publicity thing, but they are repeatedly for someone who is as inexperienced as he is putting him in these showcase matches. And by showcase, I mean, like the fights you're watching when Greg Hardy fights are the equivalent of like, if you watch Saturday morning pro wrestling during the eighties mm -hmm. and like Hulk Hogan would squash the, you know, the guy that looked like you or me that had no business being Oh yeah, the, the little jobbers. <laughs> yeah, the jobbers. You know, so that's pretty much what's going on there. And he's, um, so I, you know, since I have to cover his fights, the fights themselves as objectively as I can because I'm a reporter and that's my job, I still, before I talk about his fighting, feel like I need to bring up the fact that the fact that he's getting, he just even getting this opportunity is repulsive. But that, be that as it may. So yeah, he's not 
a very good fighter. Uh, he can punch very hard. Sometimes he even punches men. Um, oh, and, um, uh, you know, so that's, that's a good base in fighting and in heavyweights, sometimes that's kind of punching powers, it, you know, not all you need, but that's, if it's, you know, it's the only thing you can do that's, uh, that helps. But so what you saw in that fight was he got about, a round and a half end of the fight and the other fighter was, looked like he was afraid of being knocked out. Basically he wasn't really engaging him. So you saw Greg, um, you saw Greg starting to tire out, taking deep, deep breaths towards the end of the second round. If he hadn't taken that inhaler, maybe in the third round, like he's completely spent and, you know, loses the fight. We won't know because he did, like it's blatantly, like blatantly, like all you're supposed to be allowed in your corner is water. Period. There are a couple places that a couple state commissions will let you you like have like Gatorade or a sports drink, but most places don't even do that. Oh, even the Gatorade's even, even the Gatorade. In most places, it's just straight up water, and that's it. Oh, interesting. Um, so yeah, so that's and that's the only other time in his fights that Hardy have has experienced trouble in his first pro fight. Um, he it, same thing happened. It got to the middle of the second round. He started to run out of gas, and he blatantly flagrantly hit um when your opponent is down you're not allowed to knee them in the head it's like one of the most straight up like most understood rules in the sport and he just went off and just you know could not have more it was like like a wrestler trying to get disqualified like hitting someone with a foreign object in front of the ref type of thing like blatant so yeah that's uh uh, you probably weren't expecting that much of a rant from me about Greg Hardy, but uh, <laughs> his whole presence in the UFC just disgusts me. Um, yeah, so rightfully so, then he was disqualified. So um, in this fight, what ended up happening was... Um, so a commissioner at Cage side um, approved of him, said, okay, yeah, you can use it, but he didn't have the authority to do that. So... They couldn't flat out disqualify him because he was told by an official you can do it. So okay. what they do is I was is wondering just, why the wording was so. That's the why the wording is no content. If he had just if he had just gone off and just on his own and like with the inhaler, like they would have disqualified him. But so it like officially in the record books is it's as if the fight never happened. Okay, which and that goes and like I said, I I don't believe it's fake at all. It's not fake. But that's where the the story play comes in because you can re, have a rematch and and do the same thing. They over. probably won't do a rematch because they're so invested in pushing him that they'll just find like another scrub of the month for him to knock out. Oh, okay. So the next match that I watched was Rodriguez versus Stevens. Yeah. Now, this is where I was interested because the backstory. Yeah. You know, um, they were gonna fight in Mexico. I don't know how long. Ago uh, a it month was. ago, actually. Yeah. Um, Month and a half now, and I don't know if this is politically incorrect, but Stevens was a bitch in Mexico, basically, because I saw the the hit in the eye, and fighters seem like they take more. I mean, um, Rodriguez even said that you know he's been in fights where his eye has been swollen shut, but there's a little scraping of the eye, and, and Stevens had to cancel in Mexico. Rodriguez obviously had the home field advantage. Um, and then they do this rematch. 
Rodriguez wins. Spoiler alert. My thing is, this is where my no knowledge of the sport. Sure, sure. Rodriguez does these big spin kicks. How does Stevens just not like come in and grab him and throw him down? Because it, it's a big buildup. Okay. Um, I got to backpedal a little bit here. Stevens was completely justified when he got eye poked. Oh, okay. Um, there's... You're wrong. <laughs> so look at it this way. When you're a fighter, you're not going to go through a like, six to 12 week fight camp Accept a, accept a fight, go through, dedicate a couple months of your life to nothing but getting ready for this fight. Uproot, in this case, um, uh, Stevens' wife is Mexican, and they went a few weeks early on their own dime to go train at altitude in Mexico, so they'd be ready for the altitude in Mexico City. You don't go through all that hassle just to try to get out of a fight at the very first opportunity. <laughs> It just seemed sort of iffy to me. Well, it, uh, how about I give you a good poke in the <laughs> eye? And, uh... <laughs> well, I'm a baby, so. <laughs> but anyway, so because Stevens is definitely tougher than I am. Yeah, uh, but just you know, so so getting beyond that, um, uh, look, it. Um, I can see why if if like I can see why you're coming to that conclusion. Like, whoa, why don't you just sidestep it? But uh, Yair comes at you from all angles, you know, so. He is like coming from so many different directions that you don't know what's coming next. So it's not like, you know, it's not like this exaggerated, like, you know, if you ever played Mortal Kombat where Liu Kang flies through the air and uh, it kid kicks you. It, it's not like that. It's, you know, maybe Ayer is doing like, like a three punch combo. And then while his opponent is still wondering what just okay. hit him, that's when he's following up with that. And in some of these cases, like, the strike comes so fast. Like I remember there's a fighter named Anderson Silva who um, was very famous a few years back for having like the the um, just the flashiest, you know, like like kicks and spinning stuff. And um, there was a time I was sitting cage side and all I did was like I'm sitting he ten feet away from the cage and his knockout kick was delivered so fast that I literally didn't see it. I heard it and I felt it and I didn't figure out what actually happened until I looked at the monitor and saw that like, Oh, he just kicked him in the face and he did it so fast that I literally couldn't see his legs. So yeah, that's, um, you know, they're, they're so in, in a case of something like that, it's just, um, just, Athletic, like mind-boggling athleticism combined with, uh, like I said, they're keeping you guessing. He's kicking you low. He's punching you in the ribs. He's, you know, doing this and that. And then that that flashy thing comes when you least expect it. So basically, what you're saying is, I should not be a manager for a UFC fighter. <laughs> yeah, that's probably reasonable. Uh... <laughs> <laughs> like I said, that that was the only two matches I watched. It actually was fun to watch. I. I sure. probably will watch again. Sure. Um, because it was cool. And honestly, for a short attention span, people like me, 15 <laughs> minutes for a match with some breaks in between each round. Yeah. It's actually perfect timing. So. No, I think that's part of why UFC um, took off. You know, it, it it took off during a period where boxing was having a bit of a downtime, right? Um, now, 
boxing has been declared dead over and over for like a hundred years now. It's never actually going to die. But uh, before Floyd Mayweather and Manny Pacquiao really took off, there was it, in in the time between Tyson kind of petering out and Floyd and Manny taking off, there was just kind of like this dead period where it seemed like there were a bunch of boring fighters who were just kind of point fighting their ways to decisions. Uh, that that was when the UFC with the just faster paced video game, you know, video faster pacing for kind of like the video game generation just kind of took off. So yeah, it's 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 easily digestible chunks. It definitely seems though in boxing that the heavyweight division, obviously, um, I'm blanking on the British boxer that was champion for a while. He recently lost. Uh, um, Josh Anthony Joshua. Yeah, yeah. Um, no, the heavyweights have their resurgence between them and. Uh, Deontay Wilder is, and I would love to see Deontay Wilder go back in time and fight Tyson in his prime. I mean, Deontay Wilder is just a savage, and Tyson Fury's a homophobic jerk, but he's a hell of a boxer. And uh, yeah, the the heavyweight division's taking off in boxing again. And now he's the guy in WWE, isn't he? Tyson Fury. Or... Yeah, I, I'm guessing that's not going to last too long. Oh, okay. <laughs> Let's move on though to um, Eighth Life Cycle, right? Sure. It's something that's important to me. I signed up for it. As of right now, I'm still gung-ho. I Just scheduling-wise, I'm afraid of how it's going to be because it's my kids in the school and yeah. and stuff like that. <clears throat> but you've done it before. Yeah, did it this year. Um, was it your first year? It was my first year. It was the most one of the most difficult things I've ever done and one of the most rewarding, easily. How did you decide to do it? Um, let me try to make a long story short, but I took up cycling when, so I'm in my mid forties, like right around age 40, I kind of hit that age where it was like, you know, like a good group of friends and everything, but it was like, all we did was go out and drink and I wanted to find like some other type of hobby and, um, uh, I don't know, just bike riding just kind of clicked with me and I never like... So I'm sure on your podcast you have like, I'm probably the opposite of a lot of your guests here because I know you you interview a lot of athletes. And for me, I was like, uh, like in my 20s, I was your classic like slob of a sports writer. You know, I was, I'm still a pretty big dude now, but I was at my worst, I was close to 300 pounds. Um, and, you know, I lost a good 40 or 50 pounds and kept it off. But um, there was always this like in the back of my head, like, I'd like to do something athletic while I'm still young enough, like, you know, not too old to, to, um, uh, to, you know, before I'm too old. And, uh, so I started taking up cycling, started realizing I really enjoyed it, started, you know, setting like, Oh, what if I bike 25 miles? What if I bike 50 miles? What if I start biking? Like in most of the stuff I was doing by myself because, um, with my job, I work really weird hours. Like, um, uh, there are a lot, of, I have to work damn near every Saturday night because there are fights damn near every Saturday night. And there are definitely weekends where I kind of feel like the little kid with his face pressed up against the window, watching all his friends outside playing type of thing. <laughs> but, um, the flip side of that is that if I have a weird day off, like Tuesday, um, and go out on Tuesday and the bike path's empty, you know? So have it to myself, like like that type of thing. So um, I don't know, it just became a uh, just something that um, 
just kind of grew over the years. And I had friends who had done ALC and, um, I'd always been like, Oh no, I could never do it. It's 545 miles. You know, it's an entire week on a bike and it's, you're not, you're not just cruising along the beach, beach path along the, a little bit of that, but you're going up over, over mountains and through there's the headwinds desert and there's headwinds just straight from hell and uh, a little bit of everything. So I, I like, even when, um, even when uh, I even when I was doing things like, you know, biking 50, 60, 75 miles on my own, I never thought I could do this. But I just friends who I'm, I'm going to just blatantly shout out my friend Richard, who did ALC several times and was the one who really pushed me to be like, no, 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 you can do this. And it was one of just your classic, like on January 1st, I wanted a goal this year. And I was like, all right, I went and I signed up and I was excited for a day and then the next day I was like oh my god what have I gotten myself into you know so uh that that's like condensed version of of what brought me to to that point but never thought I could do it um you know I'd, again I had done a few um a few really cool rides over the pet like there's a group in Boston called Outriders that does a 130 mile ride from downtown Boston, uh, Provincetown every year. And mm-hmm. I did that a couple of years ago. That was really fun. Um, I did, I have a friend up in Seattle. We did a really cool ride pretty much like around Puget Sound that involved like biking and then taking a ferry out to an island and then oh, biking geez. the island and then taking another ferry. And that was really fun. And uh, just like, okay, let's do this and see what uh, see what comes of it. And again, it was... Um, like something that was a challenge for me that, so have you signed up for a team yet? No. Um, in my area, there's something called the South Bay blaze. Okay. And so they have a, an organized group on Facebook and I'm in that group. I really haven't introduced myself or talked about gotcha. it. But, um, it's someone local and Santa Cruz in the area I'm in actually has a Facebook group also. Oh, cool. I don't think there's organized as South Bay blaze, but Sure. Um, so I think having, um, so for me again, I ended up doing most of my training by myself because of the hours I work. Mm-hmm. Um, like I, the, the, the friend I referenced earlier, like tried to hook me up with his team and like anytime they were doing a training ride, I was like, damn, like, like I can't, I couldn't do like bike 75 miles and then go work to like three in the morning and be coherent at the end of the night, yeah. you know? Um, so I ended up doing most of my training by myself and it was, uh, difficult and a little lonely at times, but, um, uh, yeah, again, like I, I, I keep harping on like the difficult part of it, but it's, it's just being able to be like, Oh, Hey, I was never able to do that hill before. And now I don't even think twice about it, <laughs> you know, like that type of thing, all the little milestones along the way. And I remember, um, the day before when I got up to um, up to the Bay Area and had a day to kill in San Francisco and I walked uh, up to like Lombard Street. Mm-hmm. Like I stopped and started at the very bottom, walked all the way up to the top of the hill. Like, oh, wow. Didn't lose my breath or anything. And I was like, oh, wow, I've gotten myself into the best. You know, okay, I'm never going to have six-pack abs, but I've got myself in the best. I'm in my mid-40s. I'm in the best condition of my entire life. So that was that was a pretty awesome feeling. For sure. So for people that don't know, and the ride goes from San Francisco to LA. It's usually the first week of June. Yeah. Um, um, first, oh, go ahead. Uh, first week of June. It's um, 
it benefits the LA LGBT Center and the San Francisco AIDS Foundation, which were, you know, two groups that um, I think LA LGBT Center has actually been around for 50 years now. I mean, basically, look, these, these were the entities that were around when no one else would, there were no institutions to, to help gay folks and LGBT folks. And, you know, like the, the San Francisco AIDS Foundation, um, AIDS patients were being treated horribly. So we had to take care of our own. And, um, you know, the world is different now, but I feel like you still have to stay true to these, uh, these institutions that have done so much good for so long. Um, so knowing that what I was doing was going to a good cause, um, you know, that was, that was motivation to get up off my butt at like five in the morning and get out yeah. and go biking. Um, and then it also, the money raised, it not only goes to the organizations, but the or- those organizations spend it on people with HIV, with AIDS. Right. And they also spend it on um, treatment and prevention. So prep for people right. and stuff right. like that. Right. Those are all part of the fundraising exactly. goals. And, and it's, how it helps. I, I forget how many million dollars they raised this year, but it was a pretty impressive amount of money. I think it was um, over six or seven million, wasn't it? Something along those lines. Yeah. I feel like I should know that number off the top of my head. But, uh, you know, it was, <clears throat> it was interesting. It was such, it was, it was like you were just living in this alternate world for a week. Like, I swear to God, I, I, like, in the middle of, there was a period of three or four days where, like, you're, you're so deeply immersed in the, like, wake up, bike, sleep, start all over again thing that, like, I forgot that Donald Trump existed for, like, three <laughs> or four days. It was wonderfully blissful. But, I mean, it was, yeah, you know, I feel like it was such an intense experience that, like, you know, three, four months later now, I'm not sure that I've actually, um, like fully processed it. It was pretty intense. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, the, the, the ride itself starts in, starts at the Cow Palace in San Francisco, goes down to Santa Cruz, goes inland. Yeah. The, the, the second day that's like 109 miles. Yeah, where it's it a just, century. And the, it, the second day is the longest ride. The, ride long, the longest ride mileage wise. Um, that was, you know, it's, it's hard to, like if I had to pick what was a most difficult day, I don't know that I can because they were all challenging in their own way. You know, the first day down to Santa Cruz, um, I, the, the headwinds were ridiculous. And I, I heard, heard about that. I heard like people who have been doing this ride for like 20 years, just being like, Oh my God, this was the first, the worst, like first day ever. So that was my intro. And then the second day with the 109 mile ride, you're going over like, a lot of poorly maintained farm roads, like, mm-hmm. like, you know, roads that have been like chewed up by tractors. So you just feel like you're just like kind of the whole time and just going through like endless farmland. And, uh, but by the end of the second day or so, you just find yourself into a routine, uh, where again, it's just the whole rest of the world doesn't exist. And it's just you and these, this like community basically. And it's cool too. Cause you know, while you're on the route, there's uh, organized stops. There's yeah people on yeah. the the roadies who are part of the the um, the volunteer system that help the roadies you know, pack awesome. stuff. And yeah. they're there yeah. if your bike breaks down or something like that. There's so much help, not only with the roadies but with the people riding it. And stuff it's like funny. That. I actually did. It's funny. I don't know. Funny. Yeah. Funny is the word. Um, so 
my big drama during the uh, during the ride was that on the fifth day, my bike basically broke. Um, I we were doing this big climb on the PCH, and I felt my seat like starting to wobble, and I just thought like, oh, it must have you know my my uh, seat must have come loose or whatever. And I tried like adjusting it a few times and then I finally pulled over to like the next place where there were a couple of volunteers and um, my frame was cracked. My frame was cracked to the point that like my bike was toast, basically. And um, it was, so for a minute, I thought that like my ride was done. I thought it was like, oh my God, I did six, like I actually cried. I did six months of training my bike just broke. It's, you know, unrideable. I can't believe this just happened. Right. Um, and then I ended up finding out you were able to like, they've thought through everything here. You were able to rent bikes that they had bikes that were set aside because this happens to X amount of people out of 3000 every year. So I was able to, it still suck, stuck that, uh, that happened with my bike, but, um, you know, that, that, that period where I th- actually, it, it was instructive for me as a reporter, as a sports reporter, because that period in which I had taken so much, like, dedicated so much of my life to a goal for six months and thought that I had had it taken away from me through something kind of like out of my control, um, made me realize like, oh yeah, this is why when Kevin Durant blows out his knee, like he's devastated, you know, or like if a fighter you know, gets injured in training and has to pull out of his championship fighter. Okay, I, I get this now. Yeah, and I, while you were talking, I was looking. I just wanted to be correct. Yeah. Um, the ride last year raised sixteen point seven million. Oh wow, okay. Which, I knew it was a bigger number. Yeah. Which yeah. was a record. So it they're doing so much good work. And if you want to do it, I highly recommend you go to it. You sign up. They have organizers. They have uh, Bay Area reps or area reps that um, help you with tra- finding training groups, finding um, helping you organize, helping you fundraise. Um, because one of the drawbacks is, which it's not a drawback, but it's just part of the deal. You have to raise a minimum of three thousand dollars. Right. Um, a lot of people though raise so much more than that. So. Um, and yeah, there's so and many companies now that help out and stuff. Right, so. right. Yeah, I, I think I raised uh, like $3,700 or something yeah. like that. But, um, you know, I mean, you know, mo- most friends will uh, recognize that you're doing a good thing and chip in. So yeah. it, it's, that's not as daunting as it sounds, as it sounds at first glance, especially if you give yourself enough time to do it. So like I told you before <laughs> we started recording, if I did it, my dream would be to have my like a special week of episodes of my podcast entitled please come to my tent because it's a play on words obviously and it's also because you sleep in tents uh you have you know you're sleeping two in a tent um and i just thought it'd be cool to tell the stories because it's hard work long days but it's rewarding i've heard and i'm sure you can attest to that oh absolutely and there are a lot of fun times I mean, it's yeah. not like it's misery the entire time. You're no, out. it's not. Um, you know, I will say this. Um, I hope you're able to pull off that, that talk show, but all you're going to want to do is rest. And, uh, you know, you're like by the time you, it, it kind of depends on how, how, you know, how fast you get done with your day. Um, but by the time you like, you have to put your own tent together. 
Well, you and your teammate. You know, so you wake up in the morning. It's like a two-hour process in the morning where you're taking down your tent. You are bringing it over to the truck. You are getting breakfast. You're stretching. You're getting out to your bike. That's like two hours. And then you're out on your, actually out on your bike, like eight to 10 hours. And then it's like another two hour process of like, put your bike away, go to the truck, set your tent up, go shower, eat. By the time all that's done, it's like 7.30. And uh, all you're going to want to do is sleep and get five, six hours of sleep and then be up at like 4.30, 5 a.m. And, and do it again. But God bless you. I hope you pull it off. <laughs> the, the, the I got to see about just <clears throat> doing the ride. Okay. Um, well, we've been talking for about an hour. Yeah. So I don't want to keep you too late because it's already midnight here. Yeah. What's next for you? Obviously, the next fight is always, like you said, the next weekend. Do you want to do more with in UFC? Do you want to do more than report or reporting has always been your dream and this is this has been my um so it you know if you want to survive and thrive in a pretty difficult uh media landscape you have to do a little bit of everything mm-hmm. these days and uh so you know it's it's reporting it's right uh, i i work so my my official job title is senior editor for mmajunkie.com which is usa today's fight website okay um and um it's like like so for example today um i was actually like the the editor who was kind of handling all the stuff that was coming in from our reporters who are in new york this week since the events at madison square garden and uh doing a little writing on the side for something that's going to run um before the show and um yeah a little bit of everything um and that's like at heart, I'm a writer. At heart, I'm still the kid who was, you know, reading the, the Boston Globe sports page every day when I was a little kid. Um, but, you know, I don't know. Like, see, part of the reason why I can't feel like I feel like I can't give you a great answer on what's next is, like, I still can't believe that I've been doing this for 13 years now. Like, mm-hmm. I just, again, it just started with I was a fan and wanted to write about it just because I had kind of like fun with it and it ended up being my calling card in the business, you know, and, and being just kind of my thing. I'm like, yeah, I could go like, you could assign me to go cover the Clippers game and I could do it. Uh, you know, I could do a competent job at, at, at doing it, but this is like, I don't know, I've been riding this horse for a while now. So uh, just keep on riding and see where it takes me. Yeah, cool. Well, thank you so much for coming on. Thank you for coming over so late. No Um, problem. It's been a pleasure. Thanks for having me. Mm -hmm. I hope you guys all enjoyed this episode with Dave. He was a lot of fun. He came over while I was in LA at late October, and we talked until about midnight. Um, We had a few beers, and we had a good conversation. Anyways, I hope you enjoyed the episode. I will be back next week with an all-new episode. Until then, take care.